Once again, good morning. We're certainly glad you're here. I hope the students are surviving uh, the rigors of their finals. I need to hit the pavement running again. I'm going to be going to keeping you about 37 minutes. I hope you got an outline as you came in. If it helps you to fill it in as we uh, go through, uh, you'll find some slides with words underlined. That's usually the cue, and I'll try to cue you in verbally as well. Uh, it is my joy again to be able to uh, launch into talking about what is really the absolute epicenter core of our faith. I got to talk about the crucifixion last time. And today, finally, after 50 lessons through the Gospel of Mark, I get to talk about the resurrection. And I have longed for this moment. Although I know that I, uh, I will not do justice to this thing. But I'm going to give it an attempt. Apparently, back some years ago, a man pulled into a gas station in Montgomery, Alabama. Put some gas in the car, paid the attendant, got in the car, drove off. Five hours later, he noticed something was wrong, that something was missing. Finally dawned on him that he had left his wife back at the gas station. Can you imagine having to explain that to her? I guess in a kind of strange twist, we can do the same thing with Jesus. How many people come to church... We sing and pray. We remember Jesus. We go get in our cars. We go back home and never notice that we left Jesus back at the church building. On the top of your outlines, how many people come to church to adore a memory instead of coming to meet a living Christ? Not realizing that Jesus is actually a living presence who wants to walk and talk with us. Now, likely, the first recorded account of the resurrection is found in the Gospel of Mark. And in case it hasn't dawned on you, as you reflect through the different accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have you ever noticed that not one of the Gospels actually narrates a description of what actually took place in the resurrection? That is, what actually took place inside the tomb when it was happening. The resurrection is prophesied ahead of time and is announced after the fact. But Mark does not answer the prying questions that we have. Like, you know, what time did he actually rise? We know the vicinity of it, but we don't know exactly when. By what means did it take place? In what form did it take place? What is the scientific evidence so that we can have assurance? None of that. What we do know for sure is that the tomb is empty. And so that leads me maybe to ask a more important question or questions. That is, where is Jesus? And how can we find him? And so I invite you to pick up with me in chapter 15, verse 42, where we left off. And perhaps hear this again afresh. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. This remember during the Passover feast. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. 
So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint the body of Jesus. Very early, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. Now, at this point, if you have your Bibles open, Mark 16, it would be right now at verse 8. How many of you have a special notation between verses 8 and 9, suggesting that the next verses may may or may not belong to the Gospel of Mark? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. The rest of you, I assume, do not have your Bibles with you. My assumption is that most, and it's most, not all, of you have a translation, if you have one that's translated since the turn of last century. You will find the notation regarding the authenticity of chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, which states, in essence, something like, the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, allow me just a few moments to, to look at this, because it has some bearing on how I'm going to approach this text, not to mention that we should all have some thoughtful response to this, especially to those who look at Jesus with, through eyes of disbelief and who, in essence, question the actual accuracy and uh, 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 reliability of Scripture themselves. If you haven't been asked this question, you probably aren't studying with someone because they will ask that question. You need to be aware that if you look at all the available Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and you may think this is just academic, but it is not. Pay attention. There are, in actuality, six different possible endings to the Gospel of Mark. Now, sound scholarship kind of helps us refine this and boil it down to where only maybe three things, three possibilities are likely from the evidence. First of all, would be that the Gospel of Mark does indeed end at chapter 16, verse 8. But because of the abrupt ending, later scribes felt the need to add verses 9 through 20 to give us a better sense of closure. A second possibility is that whatever the ending was uh, after verse 8, 
and Mark was lost. And so later scribes added this ending to kind of tie up some loose ends. Third is that verse 9 through 20 are actually authentic and a part of the original gospel as Mark himself wrote it. I can tell you this, that conservative scholars, both present and past, have been divided over this issue. Now, of course, common sense causes us to ask the question, how do the actual ancient Greek manuscripts read, from which, by the way, we get our Bible? Well, most of the manuscripts actually have verses 9 through 20. However, most of the earlier manuscripts, that is, those dating back closer to the first century when Mark originally wrote it, do not. Also, a majority of the earlier manuscripts that do possess verse 9 through 20 have a scribal notation in the margins reminding us that the earlier manuscripts did not carry verses 9 through 20. To be more specific, we know that verse 9 through 20 appear in manuscripts that go all the way back to the 2nd century. That's old. But it is also true that the early church fathers, that is, uh, the early theologians who wrote uh, about God in the Bible back in the 2nd and 3rd century, people like uh, Origen, uh, Tertullian, uh, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus, uh, Athanasius, they either acknowledge what we see in this notation or they do not acknowledge this, this particular text, verses 9 through 20 at all. In addition, the ancient scholars, people like Eusebius, known as the, the, the father of church history, or, or Jerome. You've heard of Jerome. He's the one that translated the original Greek into the Latin Vulgate. They both attest that verses 9 through 20 were absent from most all the Greek manuscripts in their possession. So allow me just to make a few conclusions so we can move on to something more important. Let me start with something that was stated over 100 years ago by J.W. McGarvey. Those of us who are older will know that name. He is a well-known restoration preacher and scholar. And in dealing with this text, McGarvey said that the question is not, is the ending true, but simply whether, is it marking? That's what I'm asking here. I'm not suggesting uh, that anything from verses 9 through 20 is not true. But I am asking, is Mark the person who actually wrote this particular ending? Now understand that this section clearly reflects the teachings of the New Testament. You can look at the other Gospels and find that that is true. And also that there is no basic New Testament doctrine that is altered regardless of of the position you take. So we would do well to remember three things. Number one, on your outline in the box, this is not a new controversy. Don't think, as I've heard some people state, that this is something that liberal scholars dreamed up a few years ago to undermine belief in the Bible. That is not true. I've heard Christians argue that with non-believers, and they're wrong. This very issue on where the Gospel of Mark ends has been debated since the second century. This is not a new controversy. Second, many early churches of the ancient churches only possessed the short ending. 
That is, they had no knowledge that there was more to the Gospel of Mark than verse 8, chapter 16. And I believe that God in his providence equips his churches with all the revelation that they need. Thus, I must conclude, then, that whatever the basic point of the Gospel of Mark is, you can get it by verse 8, chapter 16. I might add that all the material found in verses 9 through 20, if you pay attention and look at the other Gospels, appear to be garnered from the other three Gospels. Almost plucked out and planted in. Finally, number three, the early church did not make this a test of fellowship. And neither should we. Now, some would argue that chapter 16, verse 8, in so abruptly, that is, there are no comments about resurrection appearances, and there is no you know, actual commissioning of the disciples to follow up, that there must be a longer ending, and they may be right. But this also kind of carries a preconception of how we think a gospel is supposed to end. You see, Mark may have deliberately ended this way for a reason. Now, Let's launch into the substance of this text and move from the end of Mark to talking about what really matters, the end of Jesus. When we take note that Jesus was crucified on a cross, we need to know that the execution of a condemned man under the tyranny of Rome did not mark the final moment of his humiliation. You see, Rome wanted to make a point, and that is, you better not cross us or the absolute consequences will follow you even after you are dead. And so Rome said that a crucified man was not even permitted the dignity of a proper burial. Their policy was to take the body off the cross and he was thrown into a garbage heap to rot in public view. And, of course, everyone got the message. You don't mess with Rome. And so as we pick up in our text today, it's certainly unexpected. When we find someone who is actually willing to take the risk of approaching Pilate, remember, who had just got through washing his hands of all of this, the last thing he wanted to do was deal with Jesus some more, and ask permission to bury Jesus were further mystified that the person is none other than a member of the Sanhedrin who just collectively orchestrated the death of Jesus. His name, of course, is Joseph of Arimathea. And by the way, in addition, being a Jew, he disqualifies himself from actually joining in with his people on the most important Sabbath of the year, because he touched a dead body, and that made him, by the law, unclean, according to the law. Now, my point is, what would possess a man to do something like this? And the point I'm trying to make is that what we're seeing here is a mystery of the cross. And how what Jesus had already said, had already said is coming true when he proclaimed, but I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And we're seeing here how the cross, like a spiritual magnet, is already pulling people toward Jesus. We saw it earlier as we reached the climax of the gospel of Mark when the Roman centurion, looking at the death of Jesus on the cross, said, surely this is the Son of God. 
And now we see Josephus, or, uh, Joseph of Arimathea associating himself with Jesus at a time when he had absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose. On your outlines, it is, cl- it is a clear irony that the cross, which is so repulsive, is actually what attracts. The cross is an enigma. You see, there's always something that's going to be scandalous about the cross. It bothers us. And it should. And yet, in the same breath, there's something, I don't know, winsome, appealing about this thing. And by the way, here we are today. And the very thing that we adore, we worship, The world looks at it as though it's an outrageous absurdity that a weeping, bleeding, dying God is the only hope of mankind. Is that what you believe? Now, Mark goes on to note here that Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead. And what Mark is trying to cue you and me into here and highlight is that the body of Jesus was indeed dead. He doesn't want any of these rumors circulating around how Jesus, you know, swooned on the cross and passed out. And they take him off the cross and later on, unbeknownst to other people, he revives himself. And then later on, the disciples start this lie about Jesus' resurrection. Mark says, there will be none of that. Let's be very clear here. The body of Jesus was dead. And so Mark notes how Pilate summoned the centurion who was at the scene of the cross, and this centurion validates the fact that Jesus was clearly dead. And we say, well, he's not a doctor. How would he know? But pay attention to this. It's the closest thing you're going to get. Remember that this man was a trained professional executioner. It was his job to do this. And he had plenty of experience to draw from to pronounce Jesus dead. He knows how to kill a person and he knows when he's done. And of course, you can also sense it in the actions of Joseph as well. Any evidence at all that Jesus was alive, he would not have placed Jesus in a tomb. His loving care for the body reveals that he has absolutely no expectations other than putting a dead body in a tomb. There is no resurrection in his mind. And as far as any expectations from the rest of Jesus' sympathizers, they have simply loved and they have lost. Now, before we move on, can you fathom God dying? When we say that Jesus died on the cross, don't simply process that clinically. And then you will end up setting yourself up to make the mistake to rush on to the next item, the resurrection, and gloss it over too.
think about this for a moment. Do you realize the sheer magnitude of what we're saying? And if it is true, let me tell you where that leads you. On your outlines, God has experienced life not just as a mourner, but as a corpse. There is no dimension of the human experience that God has insulated himself from. None. The body was dead, and the body is God's. And of course, I find myself kind of running to the question, why would God take on the appearance of such weakness? I mean, I want a triumphal God that will kind of just charge in and fix it for us, you know, make it so obvious and clear. But I'm left with a sense of ambivalence here, aren't you? I'll come back to it. Now, I invite you for a moment to open yourself up and actually consider afresh just how astonishing how radically improbable, staggering, is our claim that Jesus raised from the dead. I believe that one of the reasons that we struggle today, one of the reasons in reaching those who are skeptics outside of our belief, is that we on the inside have perhaps claimed beliefs that we have not really waded through and facing the improbability of it all. We just kind of take it along in stride, you see. Next, I will tell you this. There are no shortcuts to a deep conviction. None. And I can tell you this. The non-believing world is desperate for deep convictions. And so we are told that early on a Sunday morning, the woman arrived at the tomb to do what women do with the dead bodies of those that they love. They took some spices to the tomb. Now understand, this is not for mummification like the Egyptians taught and did practice. This was simply to control the stench of decomposition. Because later on, they would come back to the tomb, by the way, and uh, after the body's fully decomposed, and then they would take the remaining bones, put them in a small box called an ossuary, and then they would then put it back on a shelf to remain there. And as they go, they acknowledge that they're in a, they have a dilemma, that is, of getting inside the tomb, because the stone is far too massive for them to roll away. Now, the irony here is that we have studied through the Gospel of Mark, and we have encountered, if you paid attention through this process, if you've enjoyed this journey as we've gone along, five specific moments where Jesus directly, clearly predicted his resurrection. Three times on the trip, the final trip to Jerusalem in chapters 8 through 10, and on the Mountain of Transfiguration, and just a few moments ago before the death at the Last Supper. But when these women go that morning with their spices, they're not expecting to encounter anything other than a decomposing body. And to their bewilderment, the stone is rolled away. 
They peek inside, and what do they say? Why, Jesus must have raised from the dead. No. We know from the other gospel accounts that their reaction was, okay, who stole the body? All they know is that the body is gone. And they in no way anticipate, nor do they even consider the possibility of a resurrection. And I'll tell you that this question has troubled and challenged skeptics for 2,000 years. What happened to the body of Jesus? There's no mistake, they're at the right tomb. So perhaps, as is suggested, and was actually the first rumor spread in the first century according to the Gospel of Mark, the rumor was that the disciples came in and stole the body. If so, then why would they go around the world subjecting themselves to violent deaths as martyrs over the resurrection when they knew it to be a lie? I cannot tell you how profound an argument, apologetically, I think that is. I do know this, at least. These men, they believed it. They could still be deluded, but they believed it. Or perhaps the enemies of Jesus impounded the body. You know, they confiscated it. If so, naturally, then why didn't they present the body when it was clearly to their advantage and within their power to expose the lies of these guys walking around saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. Fix the problem. Simple. And so, you know, no matter how many times I travel through this, I'm still left with the question, so what happened to the body of Jesus? You're supposed to ask that question, by the way, even if you believe it. How else are you going to talk to someone else about this? Understand on your outlines that God did not roll the stone away to let Jesus out, but to let you in. And in doing this, God placed this question right in your and my lap. Where is the body of Jesus? But hear the word of God as he answers the question because these women are not left to interpret this moment but for themselves. For inside the tomb, it says there's this human-like being dressed peculiarly in white, a messenger of God who says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified? He's risen. He's not here. Look at the place where he was placed. Now, what is symbolized by the stone is now verbalized by the angel. And I want you to know that this phrase, he is risen, is one small word in the Greek language. But that one word announces the absolute most dramatic, staggering miracle this world will ever experience. That we just take in stride. 
Now, what would you have done if you were among the women that day? It's still dark. The sun is just beginning to come up. You look inside the tomb, and there stands a strange guy, and he tells you the most amazing news you've ever heard. What would you have done? I think you would have done the very first thing that they did. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, assuming the short ending of Mark, we, I, naturally react by saying, well, you can't stop there. It kind of leaves us out there kind of dangling in the air. You know, I need some some closure with evidences. Well, it might not make sense to us, but I'm not so sure does it make absolute perfect sense to Mark. Because if you paid attention as you've gone through the Gospel of Mark, you would have noticed something. And that is that fear was the typical reaction to Jesus whenever his true nature was revealed. Have you noticed that? When Jesus controlled the storm, the disciples were terrified. When Jesus cast a legion of demons out of that man, it says that the people in the land were terrified. When Jesus, uh, 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 when the woman came up to Jesus and touched him of his garment and was cured of that bleeding disorder, and Jesus then acknowledges her and calls her out, you know, this anonymous siphon, it says that she fell before Jesus trembling. And when Jesus walked on water, the disciples were scared stiff. When he was on the mountain of transfiguration, we're told that Peter was so overwhelmed with fear, he just began to babble. Now, do you see the pattern? We live in a day where the word awesome can describe just about anything. Truth is, I don't think we know what awesome is. Man, your car's awesome. Well, that game was awesome. We need to listen to Mark. Awesome is being in the presence of Jesus when he does only what God can do. And when people are in the presence of the awesome one, the first thing they do naturally is tremble. And so, as I come to reflect on this pervasive pattern of Mark... I think that Mark perhaps, possibly, could have deliberately written the story in such a way as to say, look, God did it again. And the people, they trembled again. So now, what are you going to do? Move on? Take it in stride? Of course, at first, the news is so staggering and breathtaking, the women are just temporarily incapacitated. But we also know from the other gospel accounts that that they would kind of collect their wits and they would break their silence. But if indeed Mark does end here at verse 8, Mark doesn't choose to tell us that. If so, why? And so I come to the, again, to the hermeneutical question, so What? What brings us here, and how do I answer? Well, again, I think Mark wanted to take this story and place it right in your lap. Mark kind of goads the reader to react. We're forced to become participants in this now. 
Mark wrote the last word, but he wants you and me to write the final word. What are you and I going to do with the angel's message? And so regardless of how you end this thing, you're faced with two questions as we come to a close. First of all, will you believe? Will you believe? And no sooner do I ask that question, like dust kind of rising out of the clamor on the floor of skepticism, the challenge comes, well, prove it. And yet, how can I prove a supernatural event with natural evidence? Let me wade into this just a little bit. Have you noticed how God refuses to cave into the cynical demand, show me and we will believe? Give me something that's irrefutable that gives me no choice but to accept the truth about this. Jesus would not sell out to that very appeal made by Satan himself in the wilderness in the beginning of his ministry. And Jesus refused to cave in to those who mocked him with that very same appeal while he was on the cross at the end of his life. It is what Dostoevsky calls the miracle of restraint. Philip Yancey terms, I think, divine shyness. That is that God refuses to perform in order to overwhelm us. To use his power to coerce us to believe. And so you realize it kind of places me in a position of having to believe from a point of weakness. And I don't like that too much. Rather, God chooses to make himself weak. In turn, allowing us to choose freely for ourselves what we're going to do with him. In fact, he is so insistent on our having a freedom to choose that he grants us the power to live as though he does not even exist. To spit on him, even to crucify him. And you might ask why God would do this, and my simple reply is forced obedience is obviously not what God is looking for. What God is looking for is a response of love, and only sacrificial love invites, summons a response of love from us. Can you understand that? And so what God offers us is a study through the historical evidence and infer from the physical fact that at least they're consistent with the event. And I believe that if we'll look carefully and thoroughly, we'll find that there are substantial reasons to believe in the resurrection. It really is impressive. But in the same breath, I must also tell you that while there is much about the resurrection that invites faith, There is, nonetheless, nothing that compels it. 
we must remember that faith requires the possibility of rejection or it is not faith. Do you understand that? But again, it fits God's character, doesn't it? God has always chosen the slow, difficult way, respecting human freedom, regardless of the cost. And so you might ask, and I would be glad for you to, why I believe. (laughs) Well, yeah, the evidence has something to do with this. But that's not all. I admit that, in part, I want it to be true. After all, faith does grow out of the subsoil of yearning, doesn't it? And there's something primal in us human beings that cries out against the reign of death. And so hope kind of billows up within us, and instinctively we resist allowing death to have the final word. You see, I believe in the resurrection because I have gotten to know God. And I've learned that God is love. And I also know that God is no more satisfied with this suffering planet than you or I am. God will not let death win. Of course, the world shoots back at this, but it is our position of weakness saying that the resurrection is just our way of deluding ourselves, that we can, you know, through fantasy and and superstition, escape the real pressures of the world. If you haven't been confronted with that, you will, if you talk about Jesus to people. But as J.R.R. Tolkien responded to this, of course, you know, the author of the epic uh, Lord of the Rings, He says, everything depends on that from which one is escaping. After all, we view the flight of the deserter and the escape of the prisoner quite differently, don't we? Why should a man be scorned if, finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home? Will you believe? And finally, quickly. Will, you, will we be silent? In other words, are we going to allow the resurrection account simply to become a faded memory that is to be placed in a photo album and taken out once a year to be admired? Again, the ending of Mark forces us to enter the story. We are the next chapter. The question then becomes, not what will the women do and will they break their silence, but what will you and I do now that we've been let in on this great news? Will it die with you and me? And so the ending becomes a never-ending story as the baton is passed on to us for us to join in on this race and spread the news. And so here we are again on Sunday morning. And we hear the news of Jesus' resurrection. And we too have a choice to make. Will we quietly go back to the routine of our lives 
largely unaffected by the news? Or will we live in constant astonishment and tell others about it? If you're looking for Jesus, have you found him yet? If not, can we help you? I'm not asking rhetorically. That's a sincere offer. I think thoughtful inquiry deserves thoughtful answers and thorough. But I invite you to believe through a position of weakness. You can't go to the cross and do anything else but that. So if we can help you this morning in any way, you can either quietly go to the back and tap one of our elders on the shoulder and talk with them, pray with them, or you can feel free to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.